We're, uh, we're in the middle of a, well, we're at the beginning, I suppose, of a red letter study. And uh, so we're going to be continuing on with that. This is actually the fifth Sunday of our red letter study where we're studying the, the words of Jesus. And for those of you who have Bibles that are red letter editions, it means that Jesus' direct words are printed in red ink to set them off from the rest of the, of the page. And so, hence the red letter study. But we're studying the words of Jesus. We're not doing it verse by verse through one gospel. We are trying to harmonize all four gospels to get a consistent narrative. We're taking a little bit more of a topical approach, so it's not just going in strict chronological order, but trying to hit topics that Jesus, I believe, was hitting, especially at the beginning of his ministry, but he never really stopped. You know, if you really analyze what... uh, Jesus was saying throughout his ministry, he's kind of a Johnny One Note. He's got one thing that he is hammering across over and over and over again. And he uses so many different metaphors, so many different symbols, so many different stories, but he's trying to get this notion of kingdom across. You know, what is kingdom? Because if we don't understand, and if his first followers didn't understand what kingdom was and meant to Jesus then getting the rest of his message was going to be next to impossible. We have to understand kingdom. So that's what we've been doing for this past four Sundays. Um, Basically taking a look at kingdom and taking a look at what we need to, to understand in order to be able to follow Jesus through his words, through his red letters. So last week we were talking about Nicodemus. And we were in the, the famous third chapter of John and, uh, and the, uh, interesting encounter between Nicodemus and Jesus where Nicodemus, who was a ruling member of the Sanhedrin, which was the 72-member ruling body of Israel, obviously beholden to Rome in the first century, but um, also a rabbi and a teacher. He comes to Jesus at night, and you can imagine he's all covered up. He's got his hoodie on because he doesn't want anybody to see him uh, coming into Jesus' presence. But he was a Pharisee and a rabbi who understood that Jesus was presenting something different. Jesus was presenting something that he needed. And so he comes to Jesus to ask a question. Now, unfortunately, we don't get the question. Take a look at John 3, starting right at verse 1. We're going to read through verse 8, which is what we read last week, just to get us a running start. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So we've got his run-up, right? We've got his preamble, but we don't get the question he's asking. Jesus answers, And says to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you know, literally, truly, truly, that's amen, amen. Amen, amen, I say to you, which means firmness, which means confidence. That's why we use it at the end of our prayers. But truly, truly, amen, amen, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? And Jesus answered, Amen, amen, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. 
The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who's born of the Spirit. Okay, so Nicodemus comes to him. He's got a burning question, right? What is the question? Well, let me ask you. If you were able to stand right in front of Jesus and ask one question, what would it be? It seems to me that there's one burning question that we all have, and people are always coming to Jesus and asking it. We don't get it right here, but we can imagine what it was. When the rich young man comes to Jesus, we read that little story last week as well. He asks, what must I do to obtain eternal life? Isn't that the crux of it? What must I do? Take a look at Luke 3, verse 10, right underneath there, and and I'm sure Brandon's already got it up. Now, this is John the Baptist's ministry, and John the Baptist has just finished telling everybody all the terrible things that's going to happen to those who are unrepentant, those who don't change their ways, and all the horrible things that are going to happen. And so right at verse 10, the crowds were questioning John, saying, what then shall we do? Isn't that the question? Isn't that what we all want to know? What must I do? What then shall we do to obtain eternal life, to be able to avert these tragedies that you're telling us are coming? And John would answer and say to them, the man who has two tunics is to share with one, with him who has none. And he who has food is to do likewise. And some tax collectors also came to be baptized. And they said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than what you have been ordered to. And some soldiers were questioning him, saying, And what about us? What shall we do? And he said to them, Do not take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely, and be content with your wages. Good advice, huh? Now, here's the thing. John is usually considered to be the last of the Old Testament prophets, right? He's baptizing in water. At Matthew 11, verse 11, Jesus says something very interesting. He says, among all of those born of woman, John is the greatest. But even the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Interesting statement, huh? Now put that together with what Jesus has been telling Nicodemus. You must be born of water and of spirit. Because John is the prophet of water. He is born of woman. He is born of water, right? We talked about the amniotic fluid, being born of water, physically born. He's also baptizing in water. And when he tells the people what they are asking, answers them, what shall we do? He answers in terms of ethics. He answers in terms of law. He answers in terms of of, of, of cultural niceties and etiquette. He answers in terms of obedience, doing things that need to be done. Jesus' message is very different because what Jesus is saying is that, yes, you've been born in water, you've been obedient to the law, but now you need to be born of spirit. And this is a whole different quality, a whole different realm that occurs here. Jesus is saying that you need to graduate from mere following of ethics and rules. You need to be able to graduate into this deeper spirit. And those who are born of spirit, you really don't understand them. 
They're like the wind. You can't see what is animating them directly, but you can see the effect of it. You don't know where they're coming from. You don't know where they're going to. There's a whole different quality about being baptized in the Spirit, being born again in the Spirit. This is what Jesus is trying to get across here, trying to get everyone to be able to see. So, of course, Jesus is uh, talking about things that Nicodemus can't understand, beyond religion, beyond obedience, beyond conformance, all the way to spirit and unity and transformance from the inside out. He talks about seeing kingdom, which we talked about last week in terms of Psalm 34, taste and see that the Lord is good, both tasting, ta'am, and seeing, ra'ah, both have to do with perception, but they have to do with being able to enjoy, to experience, to be intimate with. When we think of seeing, we can think of doing it remotely. We can keep people at arm's length and we can see them. But if we're going to taste them, just like we were talking about communion, that's actually taking into ourselves. That puts us in the most vulnerable position that we can imagine to actually take something into ourselves. This is what is going to be required if we are going to move into this new place that Jesus is talking about, this born-againness. Not about proxim- it's all about proximity, being close. To see kingdom is to be born again, or born from above, as it's literally said. Now, Nicodemus doesn't understand. He doesn't get it. So let's read a little bit further and see what, he, what he's all about. So look at John 3, starting at verse 9. Nicodemus says back to Jesus, how can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, are you the teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. Okay, we need to break this down because just blowing through it in English isn't probably going to get us too far. But let's take a look at each one of those phrases that Jesus is saying back, each one of those, those verses and sentences that Jesus is saying back to Nicodemus and see if we can start to understand where this is coming from, from an Aramaic perspective. In verse 10, Jesus says, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? This is pretty straightforward. The teacher doesn't understand. The rabbi the, the member of the Sanhedrin doesn't understand, is still thinking completely, literally, and physically. It's like the, the Samaritan woman at the well, right? Jesus is talking about living water that he can give her, and she wants the living water so that she doesn't have to make the trek from the village to the well every day with that heavy pot. And Nicodemus wants to know, well, how can I crawl back into my mother's womb and be born again? Lost in the surface of things, not diving down into the deeper things. And think about this for a second. What an indictment this is on the Jewish system, on the Jewish leaders, those who are supposed to be shepherding the people who are this caught on the surface of things. 
This is an indictment of the whole system, not just of Nicodemus. Are you the ruler of these people and you don't understand these deeper things? You can't get where the prophets went before you into the heart of the matter? This is what Jesus is trying to say to him. In the next verse, verse 11, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. Who's this we he's talking about? Hmm, we can probably think maybe he's talking about Elohim, maybe, right, the, 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 the triune Godhead. Really, most, most logically, most commentators would say he's talking about himself and his disciples, the whole group of them that are part of this movement within Judaism at this time. We testify. We speak of what we know. We speak of what we know. But remember, know is one of those words that we're going to have to parse a little bit in Hebrew because yada is really the word for hand. And to know in Hebrew is not to intellectually know something in the abstract. To know is to be intimately familiar with it, to be able to handle it. It's like a, a journeyman carpenter with his tools, right? It's like a lover who knows her lover's face, you know, can just feel it in her hands or her baby. That's the kind of knowing that Yada is all about. And so Jesus is saying, we speak of what we have intimately experienced. We speak about what we know. We testify about what we see, but we've already talked about seeing. That has to do with tasting. That has to do, again, with intimate experience. Has to do with enjoyment. Has to do with long-time connection. And so these, this is a kind of a poetic passage where Jesus is saying the same thing twice in different ways, right? We speak of what we know, we testify about what we see, but all of this has to do with intimate connection. This is why Jesus taught with authority and amazed the people, because he had that connection. They're still teaching on the surface. They're dealing with just the rules and the regulations, and Jesus is coming from this deep place of absolute connection with his father and with everyone else around him. At verse 12, he says, I to if I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Now, these earthly things that he's talking about are the physical effects that he said that you can perceive from the wind, from the spirit. As the spirit moves through our lives, it does leave a trace. You can hear the sound of it. You can see the effects of it here in your life, in the relationships and the things around you. If we testify about, those, testify about those things and you can't even believe us there, how in the world are you going to be able to trust us and believe us if we're talking about things that you can't see? This spirit that you don't know where it's coming from or where it's going to, that is full of mystery, uncertainty, that you can't understand how in the world are you going to graduate to that if you can't start with the earthly things? It's like the parables that he's constantly telling that have layers of deeper meaning. You know, his, his, his disciples say, why are you always speaking in parables? He had to. All he could do was point people in a direction so that they could taste and see, so that they could have the intimate experience, without which nothing, right? without which there is nothing but the surface once again. Jesus is trying to get people into their own experience. They must graduate from the earthly things to the heavenly things. At verse 13, no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven. Now we read that and we think, 
immediately we're talking about the pre-existence of Jesus before he was incarnated into Jesus of Nazareth. It's probably where we're going to go with that. And there's nothing wrong with that understanding it that way. But we need to take it a step further. Because what Jesus is talking about is that nobody can ascend until they first descend. This is the Paschal Mystery again. This is what we're constantly talking about, right? That you can't have the ascent without the descent. That you can't ascend to this place that Jesus is talking about, this kingdom, until you've first stripped away everything that is limiting you. Everything that you think you know. Everything that you think you are. Everything that you put your reliance into. To strip all that away. To empty out the kenosis that Paul talks about with Jesus. That he emptied himself and descended into an earthly state. We need to do the same thing, but we need to descend into our own sense of powerlessness, into our own vulnerability, to be able to let go of everything that is keeping us from being able to see what is right in front of us. To be able to descend, we must be stripped. That way we can actually see kingdom, which is the love of God right here and right now. And then he alludes to uh, Numbers 21 in uh, 14 and 15. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. So what he's referring to there at Numbers 21 is a story in the desert where after Moses has taken the people out of Egypt, they start crabbing and complaining because the food is so bad. You know, and they hate it out here in the wilderness. And as bad as it was in slavery, it was still better than this. And so God is fed up to here, and he sends these fiery serpents into the camp, and they're biting people, and they're dying. And then they cry out to Moses, call God off, help us. You know, and so he, Moses goes to God, and, and God says, okay, here's what you do. Fashion yourself a fiery serpent out of bronze, put it on a stick, and hold it up in the camp. And whoever looks up at the uh, serpent on the, on the stick, on the rod, is, uh, is going to be healed and saved and will not die. And so he does that, and the people are saved. And Jesus is drawing a parallel between the serpent being lifted up as the saving grace of the people and himself being lifted up on the cross. And so we can make another surface interpretation of the analogy that Jesus is holding up, you know, the caduceus, the, the, the rod of Asclepius, which is, a, you know, the rod with a circle that became the medical symbol of healing. You know, there's some interpreters and commentators that say this was the original of that and not just starting with the Greek, but we don't really know. But to hold up the caduceus, to hold up the cross, is really holding up ultimate vulnerability. However you understand the cross, even if it's vicarious atonement, as is traditional Western Christianity, what Jesus is showing us on the cross is ultimate vulnerability. His willingness to stay vulnerable, his willingness to accept what is being done to him for a greater purpose, to never lose his sense of love and connection for the people. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. What does it take to be able to say that in extremis where he was on the cross? to never lose that sense of caring for even these people who are mocking him and humiliating him and killing him, to show us what that looks like, what does ultimate love look like, to hold that up to us, to believe and trust that that way of Jesus, 
that descent before the ascent on the other side is what really saves us, quote unquote, not from an angry God, but saves us by liberating us here and now, spiritually, by allowing us to see what is really in front of us. This is the connection that's being made here. It is the ultimate shape of our journey, always the descent before the ascent. And then we get to verse 16, which is possibly the most famous verse in the Bible, at least from an evangelical perspective. Have you ever looked at the bottom of an in-and-out soda cup? Not the milkshake cup. That's something different. But if you look at the bottom of the soda cup, it's going to have John 3.16 on it. You know. And what is John 3.16? Let's take a look. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Famous verse. Why is it so famous? Why is it such a big deal? Because if you think about it, it's the full statement of the gospel in one line. It's really all there, isn't it? God so loved the world, God so loved us, gave his son. If we believe, if we trust in him, we will not perish, but have everlasting life. It answers that question that everybody's asking. What must I do to obtain eternal life? So here's this full statement of the gospel. God loves, God sends his son. Whoever believes is saved from death and has life. But there's a problem with us understanding this just in the English and just in the way that it's been taught to us. Again, from a traditional Western perspective. And the problem is that it's passive. We're not doing anything. All we need to do is mentally agree that this premise, this theological premise is true and then everything is done for us. And this is absolutely 180 degrees antithetical to everything that Jesus is trying to tell us. There are things for us to do, not to secure God's love, that's done, but to be able to see God's love, to taste it. Yeah, there's things we need to do. Let's break this down. Also, key words in John 3.16. The first one, of course, is God. God so loved. Alaha in Aramaic. Alaha literally means oneness, one, unity, multiple things functioning as one. And so right off the bat, we can substitute even unity and oneness for God here. World, God so loved the world, Alma. But the interesting thing is that Alma also means eternal. So when he talks about eternal life for everlasting life at the end, that is also Alma. But here in world, what does it really mean? If it can mean both world and, and eternity, what the word signifies is an era or an age. It signifies a generation. And probably most telling, it signifies never-ending cycles of newness, of diversity, of generations, and produce. So as the ancient peoples looked at the earth, that's what they saw. The earth was always regenerating through the seasons every year, watching all the diversity, all the animals, the crops, everything that was exploding in their lives. And they called it Alma, this never-ending diversity. That's the world. But it's also their idea of eternal. We'll talk about eternal life, how that works out at the end here. He gave his only begotten son, only begotten here. The word in uh, Aramaic is ihidayah. And it means only, and so you can apply that to a child. If you had an only child, 
only begotten child. You could call that child Yehidiah. But it means one in the sense of solitary. One in the sense of all together, connected, integrated. It has to do with integrated in all aspects of being. That's the idea of Yehidiah. So this idea of, of Jesus being an only child or only begotten is again on the surface of the matter. What this is really drilling down to and trying to tell us that Jesus could be considered the son of unity, a fully integrated human being, one in all aspects of being, his insides and his outsides, his thoughts, his actions, his deeds, his motivations, everything is coming from the same source. Jesus said, I and the Father are one, Hidayah, the son of unity, connected in every way. Whoever believes in this Son of Unity, etamen, which is related to amen. We just talked about that. Trust, confidence, firmness, not belief mentally, not mental agreement, but a confidence that allows us to act as if this thing were true, even if we're missing some evidence, right? Will not perish, abad, but not just perish in terms of die, but it means to go astray. Remember when Jesus was talking about blessed are the pure in heart in the Beatitudes? This is the idea, to be pure in heart, to not go astray, to not fall away, and not to decay. To destroy would be abad as well. Decay, destroy, go astray, fall away. We'll have eternal life. And here we get back to haye da'alma, life that is eternal. But this is life that is always new, always refreshed, eternally here and now. Life that is eternally alive. When we think of eternal life, we think of life that goes on without end sometime in the next life and the hereafter. Eternal life to a Jew is life right now that is always exciting, refreshed. Jesus says, I came to bring my followers life and life abundantly. This is Hayyad Alma. This is eternal life, abundant life right now that is experienced with meaning and purpose and a sense of connection. That's the eternal life. Not future and the after, but abundant life right here and right now. So if we put all those thoughts together, take a look at the paraphrase. Brandon won't have it, but it's on your inserts if you're looking at those. Here's John 3.16. We're just going to paraphrase it. You got it up there? You're amazing. He typed it in for you. Look up at your monitor, see? God, unity, love the world, his creation, the diversity of never-ending cycles of new forms, so that he gave his son, a child of his own unity, completely integrated and unified in all aspects of being, that whoever trusts and confidently follows and fulfills that unity in themselves will not go astray or fade into decay, but will have life that is always new and fresh and alive. Yeah, I'm pushing it a little bit, but that would be the idea from an Aramaic point of view, what John 3.16 is really saying. Notice how different it is. Notice how the onus now falls on our shoulders God has already done everything that he can do, withheld nothing, giving us everything. It's up to us to get to the point that we can accept it for what it is, that we can actually embrace it for ourselves. It's just like Revelations 21.5. See, 
I am making everything new. I am making all things new again. And he speaks this, God speaks this, when the new Jerusalem is descending and coming down onto the surface of the earth. And he says, there is, I will wipe away every tear. There will be no more death. There will be no more mourning. There will be no more crying. I am making all things new. Haye alma, Eternal life. Life that is eternally alive. This is where everything is pointing to. So what is the key to this eternal life, this life that's eternally alive? We'll find it in the very first part of John 3.16. For God so loved, so loved. When we think of so loved, what do we think of? We think of how much, right? How much did God love? Well, so much. Remember Johnny Carson? He had this bit that he did that was so funny. And he said, it was so hot in Burbank today. And that was the cue. And the whole audience would come out, how hot was it? Remember? And then he'd stand up there with that deadpan and he'd say, it's so hot, I saw a chicken lay an omelet. It's so hot, I saw a funeral procession pull through a dairy queen. (laughs) It's so hot, cows are giving evaporated milk. The Statue of Liberty was asked to lower her arm. It's so hot I saw a guy holding a sign will work for shade. It's so hot the Betty Ford Clinic opened a wet bar. It's so hot I saw a bird pull a worm out of the ground with an oven mitt. It's so hot they installed a fan in the debt ceiling. And it's so hot I saw two fire hydrants fighting over a dog. Just had to see if you're awake out there after this point in the thing. Okay, when we think of so... God so loved. We're thinking of so much, how much, that it refers to quantity, right? But so here in the Aramaic is hakana. In the Greek, it's the same. Huto. Thus. In such a manner. That's what so means. Not quantity, but we're talking about quality here. That's what is trying to get across here. Always answers the question, how, but not how much, right? And I can't overstate the importance of this difference. We've got to get this difference under our fingertips. Because how much is dealing with a degree. It's dealing with an amount. But if God's love is perfect, it has no degree. We've got to see this. If God's love is infinite, it can't be measured. And anything that can't be measured always looks the same. Let that percolate for a second. Anything that can't be measured always looks the same. Think of the universe. Think of the stars and the star field in the sky. Think of a horizon. You can't measure these things. And so they always look the same. I love the first lines of books. The first line of Anna Karenina, um, Leo Tolstoy's classic, is that happy families are all alike. Unhappy families are each unhappy in their own way. Think about that for a second. Love can't be measured. It always looks the same. Happy families that actually love each other always look the same. (laughs) You know, if it can't be measured, it looks the same. We can measure our unhappiness. That's different for each one of us. But if it can't be measured, 
It always looks the same. God's love has no degree. To ask how much in connection with God's love is absurd. It makes no sense because God's love is degree-less. What John 3.16 is talking about is the manner in which God loves. God loved in such a manner that he gave his son. Okay? How does God love? Now, there's two Hebrew words for love. One is ram, and the other is ahaba. Ram is a flowing of love, a wellspring of love, like a fountain from deep within. In fact, ram shares the same roots with the Hebrew word for womb. And so a woman's womb that brings forth a child and the sense of a mother's love is all wrapped up in this idea of Rome and the kind of effortless love that flows from one person to another or one thing to another. It's full of feeling and sentimentality and affection, all those things, devotion. It's all there, right? This is God's love for us. God holds nothing back. His love is flowing from this deep place, this interior place, He gives everything all the time. He loves in this way that the natural thing for him to give was his own son, his own unity in human form. Why? Why would he do this? Because the second word is ahaba. Ahaba means actually, literally, to kindle a fire, to germinate a seed. Now, you might be thinking, what in the world is going on here? How does this have anything to do with love? Think about kindling a fire. Think about gathering all the little dry twigs and sticks and all the little furry things that are going to combust easily and get those things sparked and blow on them and work on getting a flame that actually starts to take hold and then slowly feeding larger and larger twigs and then finally you've got this roaring inferno. Think about a seed germinating, germinating, a dead husk of a thing. But in the right conditions, in the presence of water and nutrients, it breaks open and something sprouts forth. The idea of this kind of love is one that slowly grows, and only because you're nurturing it, only because you're caring for it, only because you're working on it assiduously, day in and day out. And this transformation is slowly happening from inside out. When Jesus says, love your neighbor, the word he uses there is rom, because it's easy to love our neighbor. It flows from us. We understand these people. We like these people, right? But when he says, love your enemy, the word he uses is ahaba, because it's not easy for us to love the enemy, the one that we don't understand, the one that we don't really even like, maybe the one that disgusts us. How are we going to love them? Well, it's going to be like kindling a fire. It's going to be like taking a dry, dead seed and slowly coaxing it into life. How does God love the world? How does God love all creation? How does God love us? Well, it's Ram, of course, but... This circuit of God's love is not closed, it's not complete, until we can rom him back, until we can love back the way God loves us. How in the world is God going to pull that off in human beings? See, for us, humans, love, rom love, is not possible until we ahaba first We have to grow this transformation in us first before we can love with the kind of love that God has for us. Even a mother's love, as close as it is and still as and is a model for this kind of love, is not complete, is it? 
It's not perfect in human form until this process has taken place. We, as human beings, need to work through the slow process of kindling, of germination, of transformation. We need to descend. We need to allow ourselves to be stripped down of everything that we hang on to that keeps us at arm's length from each other, that we hold on to as illusions of ourself that keeps us separated from one another. We need to strip down until we realize our own powerlessness, our own vulnerability, to taste and see that God loves us even then. If we are imagining ourselves lovable, if we are imagining ourselves worthy of God's love, we are not capable of God's love or even seeing when it's really there. It's only when we've been stripped down to our most vulnerable and broken state and God still loves us, is still there for us, that we finally start to get the first glimpse of how in the world we're going to love this person out there that looks so unattractive. When God loves us in our unattractiveness, then we understand how this works. This is the process of a haba. It shows us that our enemy is just like us, equal in God's degreeless love, that God loves that enemy as much as us. That's what makes this whole thing work. All the metaphors that Jesus uses is pointing right to this point. That is the rebirth. That is being born of the Spirit. That is seeing kingdom. That is the truth that makes us free. That is life that is eternally alive. All the metaphors Jesus is using is trying to point us like a laser to this one place. God's Ram love for us caused him to send his son to participate in Ahaba with us to show us in human form what it looks like to take this journey, to make this transformation happen. At Luke 12, verse 49, Jesus has a really interesting line. He says, I came to cast fire upon the earth. How I wish it were already kindled. What in the world would he be talking about there? But put it back into what we're just talking about here. He came to cast fire on the earth. How I wish it were already kindled. He came to light this fire for us. He came to show us how we kindle the fire of Ahaba so that we can graduate to Rome. This is his whole purpose. Simple, one thing. But look at what he needed to do to try to get it across to us because we're human, because this is so difficult, because it flies in the face of everything that we see in life around us. Counterintuitive. God is pure Ram. He doesn't need, God does not need to Ahaba, but he does so for our sake. The manner in which God loves us is to send someone to show us what this transformation looks like, to show us the Ahaba that will bring us back to Ram from separation to unity. Why is this important? Because the traditional reading of John 3.16 is passive. It takes us out of this whole journey, this shape. It allows us to sit on the sidelines and let Jesus vicariously do for us everything as if that were possible. But God, when we think about it, 
John 3.16 traditionally. God loves us so much, he sent his only son to die in our place. And if we believe, if we mentally agree with that premise, with that promise, then we're going to get to heaven after we die. But everything from a Aramaic point of view is vastly different. In reality, God sends us perfect unity, sends it to us in human form, descended into this vulnerability, descended into this powerless state. And when we participate in that unity, participate in that vulnerability, we kindle a fire within us. And the fire slowly is burning away all the walls that separate us from one another. It separates and defines our enemies for us. Burns all that away until we actually begin to see the unity, the connection of all things, which is kingdom. Seeing the connection and unity of all things and to us is kingdom. We can see that by tasting. We can see that by experiencing, by enjoying our walls coming down within us as we go through this process. And seeing that unity is seeing kingdom. And seeing kingdom is being born again. To read that paraphrase one more time, to let it sink in. God, unity, love, the world, his creation, the diversity of never-ending cycles of new forms, so that he gave his son, a child of his own unity, completely integrated and unified in all aspects of being, that whoever trusts and confidently follows and fulfills that unity in themselves will not go astray, fade into decay, but will have life that is always new and fresh and alive. John 3.16 is an active partnership with God in Ahaba that makes life here now alive, not hereafter, right here, right now. Always exciting, always fulfilling, always active. And then guess what? We get to take it with us into whatever this next life holds, but it starts here. It always starts now. And if we're not starting it now, We'll have to wait for another now and start it then, because it's always now. Let's pray. Father, wow. There is so much here that it can get kind of overwhelming. Help us to cut through all of that. And anything that is, has been spoken or that we read that is not actively pointing us just to your love, just to be able to understand the degreelessness, the intensity, that we can just put that on the shelf. Don't let it distract us. Let it come back to us when the time is right, but for right now, that we can stay pointed like lasers just on your love that allows us to take these next first steps that are so frightening and find our way more and more to trust more and more that this way is the only way that you've told us to be able to see you in our lives as you see yourself. That's it. That's what we pray for right now, Father, 
And we pray that this series and everything that we do here in our community and at home and the rest of our lives is all pointing in the same direction because we want that. We want that connection with you deeper and deeper, Lord. So, Father, thank you for guiding us. Thank you for never leaving or forsaking with your constancy and your love. And never let us forget. We can only love back because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Let's stand.